Good morning. Our next case is Washington et al. versus Klein et al. I'll note Justice Allen is recused in this case. Uh, we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. Justices, may it please the court. My name is Robert Ekstrand. I uh, represent uh, now the estate of Frankie Delano Washington, uh, who passed during the pendency of this appeal. His son has has been named the administrator of the estate, um, and he's we're proceeding on that basis now. Um, justices, th this case is is in some ways pretty straightforward. This is a, a simple quorum claim that's brought against the state by way of an official capacity claim uh, against the, the prosecutor, Ms. Klein, uh, the person, the prosecutor who, who prosecuted uh, Mr. Washington, but also the actual perpetrator of the offense, which will be important later, she prosecuted Lawrence Hawes um, for all the other crimes in what, what became known as the Trinity Park rapes and home invasions in Durham. Um, the, this, this case is, is before you on discretionary review um, and the Court of Appeals decision below, which I'll refer to at times as Washington 2, uh, Washington 1 would be the criminal appeal that concluded uh, my client's rights under um, Article 1, Section 18 of the state's constitution and uh, the speedy trial right under the federal constitution were violated. That'll be Washington 1. Um, the Washington 2 case, which is the appeal um, that is before you, uh, the decision that's before you now, started off well enough. Uh, it identified uh, the, the primary argument of the state, which was that uh, in a speedy trial case, the state contended that the only remedy available is dismissal, vacator of indictments and convictions, and that the, the, the plaintiff in this case had obtained those things. Uh, the Court of Appeals correctly observed that, that that is language that comes from appellate decisions of criminal cases where they're trying to fashion a remedy for a speedy trial violation. In the very first iteration, the, the Supreme Court of the United States recognized that really, given the nature of the speedy trial right and its violation, there really is no other uh, criminal remedy available that, that, that addresses the violation other than dismissal of the convictions. And so that language has been echoed, but it certainly didn't, uh, didn't hold, no, no court has held that, that that language applies equally to a direct cause of action for violation of the same right to address all the other harms that come with a violation of the speedy trial right. Um, and the Court of Appeals correctly observed that that, that language doesn't apply here um, and that a civil, a direct cause of action in a civil case under the Constitution uh, is different and it isn't barred by that principle. Um, then, the, then the case and the decision sort of jumped the rails and, and immediately after making that holding and rejecting that argument, the Court of Appeals began analyzing the case under Bivens and, which, and its progeny, which are all cases where the, there is a direct cause of action under the United States Constitution against the United States of America. And as this Court is well aware, and the briefing has made clear, um, the federal analysis has <laughs> is diametrically opposite to what this court adopted long, long ago as early as sale and before that, where this court simply said that if there is a, and held, if there is a violation of a citizen's constitutional right, a right guaranteed by our Constitution, and the harms that are, are, are caused by that violation will have a remedy. And if it needs to, it would be a remedy under a direct cause of action under the state constitution, but preferably and primarily if there's an, a state law claim, an alternative state law claim that would redress the harms that the constitutional violation caused, well then you proceed under that. That's what 
we all refer to now as an adequate state law remedy. Um, this court has over and over and over again found that where there is no adequate state law remedy and a constitutional violation has been pled or at summary judgment, the evidence has been forecast to show the constitutional violation and that other remedies are not available. And typically they're not available for the same, the same reason, which is immunities. And this court has, has expressly held that immunities are judge-made rules and as such, they don't bar relief under the Constitution because the Constitution is the supreme law. So are you yes. asserting that the Article I, Section 18 state constitutional protection here is broader than the speedy trial rights in the federal Constitution? I believe it is, but that's not, but this case does not turn on whether or not it does. This case in, the, in, in Washington 1, the court analyzed the, the two rights as coextensive, and the same factor analysis applies to make the, make the same determination whether it's a, a violation of the speedy trial right federally or Article 1, Section 18. But if they are coextensive. They are, at least. And, and if, we, if we say that that's the case, yes. then um, isn't it relevant that under the, because I understand your argument, and I think you're correct that we have no business as state appellate courts citing Bivens and trying to create Bivens doctrine because it exists for a very particular purpose and we have a different right. way of handling those direct claims yes. here. But if in federal doctrine you could not bring a claim like this because the remedy according to federal doctrine is in your criminal case, why wouldn't we have a similar principle in state law if the claims, the protections are essentially coextensive. Why wouldn't it in both systems, knowing that you can raise this in your criminal trial and avoid, even if you were guilty, ever being convicted of the charges is the remedy. What, what's wrong with that? Well, no, no federal court has said that there's no, no civil action under the speedy trial right. No federal court has said that because, because there's this criminal remedy that is exclusive to the criminal context. No, no, I know of no court that has held, um, at least not, uh, there may be a district court that has, has made mention of it, but I, I think all of those are dicta. But the point is, you, know, you, you, can, you can certainly bring a 1983 claim for a violation of the speedy trial right. Um, you just can't bring it against the state. And it, because of you know Eleventh Amendment immunity, but but the idea is that I, I, I think that that the, what I think we we the Court of Appeals held we agree that 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 language that federal courts used and and our courts use to discuss the speedy trial violation in the context of a criminal case they're saying that there's. This is, this is the least we can do. This is the least intrusive thing we can do in a criminal context, and it's serious. And I think the reason why they say that so often is because it's a dramatic remedy in a criminal case. It's not like suppression of evidence where the case can still go on. It is an end of the case. Um, and and that's, that's why I think that language is used, and I think it's also referred to as an extraordinary remedy at times. And I think that's just because it, in the context of criminal remedies, it's the most extraordinary remedy there is. The case ends. But, but in considering the difference between the federal constitutional guarantee and, its, and how that has been played out in federal courts and the state constitutional guarantee, even if we apply the same doctrines to determine whether there's been a violation, what's the impact of the fact that in our state jurisprudence we have the quorum mm -hmm. precedent? Well, it, it, it changes everything. And, and the quorum precedent basically says that if there is a quorum, quorum stands for a lot of things, but in this context, you can you can view it as quorum is not picking and choosing which rights in Article One are going to have available a cause of action. Quorum and and and, and its progeny, and going all the way back to Sale, essentially said that if there's a violation of the Constitution. And, and Article One in particular, any any section of Article One, that you have a you have a, a direct cause of action under the Constitution, and that's where the two that's where the two approaches 
diverge because in the, in the Bivens context, and I, I think the, there's good reason to think that that's, there's no more Bivens claims. They've grandfathered a couple claims in, but, but the, the, the Supreme Court of the United States decided to take the approach of almost incorporation <clears throat> of certain rights in the, as actionable. So the First Amendment is probably the strongest in that line of cases, and it may still exist, although it's been <laughs> whittled away. But again, it's, it's, it's a completely different approach to, to, I think, valuing the constitutional right. But getting back to Justice Earl's question, it, it seems to me that you're, uh, the framework here is not about sort of Bivens and mm. quorum, the, but the, the contrast that can be drawn is 1983 and quorum, because unlike a 1983 claim, you, there's no right to bring the direct state constitutional claim in our state court unless you can make that showing that there's no other place that you can go, no other way to raise right. the claim and be afforded a remedy. Right. And the thing is here, you can raise it in your criminal proceeding and you know you'll never be convicted. And so I guess what, what I'm looking for is something in our state law doctrine that would say that's not an adequate remedy when it seems to be very adequate. I mean, it's, a, it's an extremely aggressive remedy. It means even if you committed a very serious crime, you won't, right. you won't be held accountable. Right. And that, that's one thing that's, that's different about this case is that Mr. Washington was innocent and the prosecutor knew it. And the prosecutor withheld evidence while delaying the trial, withheld, withheld extraordinarily exculpatory evidence and delayed sending DNA tests because she was well aware that one perpetrator had committed all of the rapes in the Trinity Park rapes, the 10 or 11 in succession happening once every month, including every month after Frankie Washington was incarcerated and stopped as soon as Lawrence Hawes was arrested in September. But you're not arguing that this quorum claim that you're asserting here is only available to someone who first proves they're actually innocent. No, right? what I'm- so I understand why you're making this argument, but we're, we're trying to understand right. you know, in every case because sure. uh, your client did have a remedy uh, for being charged, being actually innocent, being charged with a crime as well, right? State law does provide a remedy there. Well, it, in the criminal context, it, it was a remedy, but it simply stopped the damages. And this is, a, this is an action for damages, for all of the real harms. This was a catastrophe. I mean, this, this, my client was an auto mechanic. He, he struggled with drugs. And, and was winning that battle and losing that battle, but he was a productive citizen. He had a son that he cared a great deal about. Um, and he was, he was arrested, held on a million dollars bond, and lost really everything throughout the, the five years that it took to get to trial. And by the time he got to trial, with, with all the evidence that had been withheld about the, the alternate, alternative perpetrator, and the DNA testing that was withheld. Um, the delay caused the absence. The trial is, is a succession of witnesses who can't remember anything about what happened five years ago. Um, and so they refer to reports where the reports are there. And in fact, that's some, how we found out about some of the exculpatory evidence. For example, in this case, um, there had been some discussion about the Breeze family saying that the perpetrator was was around five seven or eight. My client was five five, but the dispatch record, the transcript of the dispatch record, was disclosed to us or to the trial counsel only because the officer <laughs> went to the stand with it and started to read from it because he couldn't remember. And the question was, how tall was was the perpetrator according to these these victims? Six one, just like everybody, every other. Home invasion described the same perpetrator, skin, thin, tall, 20s or 30s, he had a bandana over <clears> his face and a toboggan on his head. So you really couldn't see much else. But Frankie Washington is 5'5". Five, five, five. Counsel, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I, I want to get back to yeah. Justice Dietz's uh, question. You, you mentioned uh, damages, and yes. certainly quorum allows uh, uh, potentially damages uh, as a remedy, but 
But Quorum also says that where the, where the common law supplies a remedy, mm -hmm. we bow to those established remedies. And and why is uh, or, or why is not the um, uh, dismissal mm -hmm. for the violation not a common law remedy uh, that's clearly established that we should, in the words of Quorum, bow to? Because it's inadequate. It's inadequate to address all the harms that are caused. And in this case, they're, they're, they're probably more profound because of, of my client's innocence. But, but, in the, but that's the case that's before you. And, there are, and it may be that there is a case where someone really did benefit more than they ever could otherwise. But in the case of an innocent defendant where there's demonstrable proof of that, there are harms that that, that remedy does not that that does not reach. But is that so? Is a speedy trial uh, claim different from what you're saying, which is an actual innocence claim uh, that there's some abusive prosecution? Uh, are, are they different? Well, I think I think that they're different in that the damages are are different, and in this case, the remedy will be will have to be broader because there. There is, a, there is a claim here that my client has, has suffered the loss of economic capacity, suffered lost wages, suffered reputational harm. There's an affidavit from a psychiatrist who, who reports that eight years after, he's still suffering from PTSD, not only as a result of, of being wrongfully arrested, well, wrongly arrested, and then wrongfully detained and prosecuted, while everyone involved knew that the perpetrator had been convicted and is serving a 90-year sentence. Those are all harms that that dismissal of a conviction uh, don't re doesn't reach. And so the question with respect to the second prong of a quorum claim is, is there an adequate state law remedy, a state law remedy that's adequate to address the harms caused by the constitutional violation? In this case, and I don't think that this has to be a categorical rule, in this case, though, Frankie Washington suffered catastrophic harms that maybe other defendants who don't have a plausible claim to innocence um, won't be able to show. Um, but but his, Frankie Washington's life was, 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 as in all of these cases, abruptly stopped and systematically taken apart. His family ties, his relationship to his son, his own mental health and well-being. Um, th there's, there's really not too many things that a human being endures over a long period of time that are more destructive than that. And I think this court has recognized the false accusation as, as, as one of the really most nefarious things that, that we as humans can experience. And that's what my client did. Um, and he did it over a long period of time. But my, 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 so the answer is that, that that is a remedy that stops some of the harm, like incarceration. It stopped that. But it didn't address the prior years of incarceration, years of pretrial you know, pre release under, under the threat of the trial, and then, the, and then all, all of the the things that flow from being publicly accused of, of perpetrating one of the worst things you can do to another human being on a serial basis in your hometown. That, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty severe and no, no dismissal of, of the charges or the indictments is going to address all those harms. So the answer is simply that it's not adequate. I, I, I think that, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's the answer. Um, in order to, and I, I, I would like to reserve a good bit of my time um, for rebuttal, but it, it, I want to emphasize that if, if the court, if you read anything that's beyond the briefs in this case, I think that the, the affidavit of, of Frankie Washington's trial counsel, uh, Lawrence Campbell. Um, it's just, it, it, it's, it's 
it's crucial that, that I think you understand how much information was known to the, to the state, to the prosecutor, how much information was withheld, that the orders that were issued, for example, Ms. Klein was ordered to direct the SBI to, do, to conduct a DNA test of the bandana that was found after the Breeze home invasion that my client was accused of committing. And she waited five years to do that. And when it came back, it turns out the only test that the SBI was asked to perform was for hair. And a bandana, of course, was worn over his face, which would produce extraordinary amounts of skin cells, other, other sources of DNA, which would have you know, obviously been, could have been matched to anyone who is in the database. And by that time, Mr. Hawes was in the database. He had been since 1988, because prior to these rapes and home invasions, he was, he was imprisoned for, on a 40-year sentence for doing this exact same thing in the exact same place, home invasions, burglaries, and, and rapes. And a few months before this spate, of crimes took place. Mr. Hawes was released on parole, which obviously was in effect then, and he registered as a sex offender in his grandmother's home where he had lived previously, which was in, within walking distance of all, of all of these homes and these people. And, and the, Mr. Campbell's affidavit painstakingly walks through all the evidence that this, that this was the, all the victims reported the same, described the same person acting the same way according to the same modus operandi and literally was, the physical description alone was just impossible. I mean, Frankie Washington is, was 5'5". Five five. Everyone, everyone who had a intimate, physical, close proximity encounter with their attacker said he was 6'1" or 6'2", I think the shortest anyone said was 5'10". Was it's just not possible to, to make that mistake. And of course, this whole case turned on a show-up procedure where the, the Breeze family was put in the back of a police car after the incident. They had found Frankie walking towards the Breeze home and not, not running away from it, but towards they detained him, and then they brought the Breeze family in, in the back of the car. Um, they, were, they were asked to, to if, if this person that was being brought out of the police cruiser on the other, other end of the street was the perpetrator, and they said, yeah, it looks like him. But again, remember, they, they're sitting in the back of a car. The, the perpetrator wore a bandana that covered below his eyes and a toboggan that covered the top half, and again, this was a, a show up. And when you have a show up, anytime the trial happens, you, you, you have the problem is prejudice to the defense by virtue of the defendant sitting there after a idea has been made. Imagine it's just much more um, profound when it's five years later and the, the victims are asked, can you identify your attacker? And that was, now, I'd like to reserve the, the remainder of my time. I have about six minutes, if I could, if there are no further questions. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. My name is Joe Finarelli, here on behalf of the state and former District Attorney Tracy Klein, who was sued in her official capacity with respect to this claim. Your Honors, a unique right deserves a unique remedy. Such a remedy, vacator of a criminal conviction or dismissal of the charges, already accompanies a violation of a defendant's speedy trial right, regardless of the defendant's guilt or innocence. Given the consequential and intrusive nature of that remedy, vis-a-vis -vis the state, and consistent with this court's holding in quorum, 
This court should decline to recognize a civil cause of action for money damages against the state under Article I, Section 18 of our Constitution. In quorum, as this court is aware, it held that in the absence of an adequate state remedy, one whose state constitutional rights have been abridged has a direct claim against the state under our Constitution. But quorum imposed limitations on what that remedy can be. First, it said, if there are other common law remedies, you have to bow to those remedies first. It also said that the judge or court in imposing a remedy or crafting a remedy must use or select the least intrusive remedy for the violation. And in this case, we're certainly in agreement with Mr. Ekstrand's presentation that the, of the significance of the consequence to the state of the speedy trial violation found by the Court of Appeals. I mean, the Court of Appeals was clear. Every single one of the speedy trial violation factors that it evaluated, it held against the state. We're not arguing that there was a speedy trial violation. The Court of Appeals conclusively said there was. But the effect of that speedy trial violation is significant. And it's frankly less significant when you're considering the consequences of a direct cause of action for constitutional violations in the criminal context. I know this case is simply addressing right now the Article I, Section 18, but the principles apply, as we've argued in our brief, to other decisions and other conduct during the course of a criminal prosecution. It's not simply does a speedy trial violation for someone who professes innocence that's determined by the Court of Appeals and finally assessed by a, a court of jurisdiction, does that create a claim? The speedy trial claim doesn't just arise when it's found by the Court of Appeals to have violated a speedy trial right. That isn't what the speedy trial litigate or jurisprudence suggests, and it isn't necessarily how that right would be asserted. It would be asserted, I believe, similar to the way any other constitutional right is asserted. I believe I've been wronged, I bring a claim, I'm then allowed to pursue that claim if in the context of the state constitution, I have no alternative adequate state law remedy. There's no requirement in any other context that you cannot bring a state constitutional claim until a court tells you you have a state constitutional claim to bring. So the, the remedy here is intrusive. The dismissal of the charges, Mr. Uh, Ekstrand's uh, argument on behalf of Mr. Washington that he was factually innocent, that isn't what the Court of Appeals said. The Court of Appeals did not address that issue. It simply said speedy trial violation is established. On that basis, we don't need to address the other arguments that were raised. And as a result of that speedy trial violation, it vacated the convictions and dismissed the charges with prejudice against Mr. Washington. So there is clearly an intrusiveness of that level, that kind of remedy. So, so you, you um, are suggesting that under quorum, it's the intrusive? What I'm trying to understand is the distinction, at least it seems to me there's a distinction between whatever intrusive might mean about a remedy versus adequate. And, and the argument here is that dismissal of the charges is not adequate because it doesn't compensate him for um, the ways that he suffered and that it, that it may be that other individuals who's, who a court finds um, their right to a speedy trial under the state constitution was violated don't have similar injuries, but under quorum, the question isn't whether some people might be injured and others won't. The question is whether the constitutional violation, whether there's some other adequate state procedure to compensate. And 
And so, for example, in, in quorum itself, the court didn't say, well, reinstatement would be enough, there's no need to pay back pay. They said it needs to be an adequate remedy, and they left it on remand to determine exactly what the contours of an adequate remedy would be. But, but how can we possibly say that here, the dismissal of the charges is perfectly adequate when it, when it doesn't begin to compensate him, at least as alleged at this stage, it doesn't begin to compensate um, the, Mr. Washington for all the ways in which he suffered. I'm going to answer that question in two, with two different uh, points, Your Honor. First, your discussion of quorum and quorum's focus on, and, and this court's subsequent jurisprudence on the adequacy of a state law remedy. Subsumed, though, within the discussion of adequacy of the remedy in the quorum case is the discussion that the remedy must be the least intrusive. It talks about the adequacy in really two different parts. There's, is there a remedy under common law that is adequate to address the claims? And is the remedy then selected the least intrusive remedy possible? Now, Subsequent cases from this court and the Court of Appeals have not addressed the distinction of the least intrusive aspect that's discussed in quorum. So that would be the explanation for the quorum issue. The question of how to address the broader claim for damages. We have conceded in the brief that there is no adequate state law remedy certainly as against the state or district attorney client. Uh, the claims that were brought against her in her individual or official capacity in other contexts, and there were 23 causes of action, not all brought against her, but 23 causes of action. Those, we believe, would have been barred by uh, prosecutorial immunity, and that prosecutorial immunity is absolute. However, and I apologize for not catching this before. I had an epiphany in the attorney's room before the argument. And I will submit a memorandum of additional authority. But if the question is the adequacy of the remedy for the damages that Your Honor mentioned, the, and that Mr. Ekstrand mentioned, the lost wages, the pretrial incarceration, the emotional distress, the Court of Appeals opinion in Taylor versus Wake County addresses the question, looking at this court's quorum jurisprudence, and says, the question is not, can you get the remedy from the defendant you wish to target? It's, can you recover for the injuries that you sustain? Under the, in the complaint, and on the day, I believe the day before summary judgment was uh, heard for the state's motion, the plaintiff settled with five of the Durham police officers. I believe they settled. I don't know that for certain. There was simply a voluntary dismissal that was entered the day before the summary judgment hearing. The 13th cause of action in the complaint pursues malicious prosecution and conspiracy against those officers. Mr. Ekstrand's complaint identifies the same measure of damages. Loss of economic opportunity, pretrial incarceration, emotional distress, all of those same damages would have been recoverable and were recoverable in a malicious prosecution claim against those officers. That claim survived the motion to dismiss. But isn't that a very different claim, saying that um, you should never have prosecuted me in the first place and, I, and you did so maliciously, isn't that very differently, different from saying, I tried to get this case tried quickly and the state constitution gives me a right to a speedy trial and the, the state denied that right. And it seems to me, so now you might, you know, there, there might be arguments about how to measure money damages in this case mm -hmm. and, and what elements are, are, are relevant, but on the, on the fundamental question of whether or not an action lies here for money damages for violation of a speedy trial, right to a speedy trial, what, it, it, I don't, it doesn't seem correct to me that we would say 
that you've that if a different right was violated and you get compensated for that, then that's why there's no cause of action under the Speedy Trial. Well, I think the confusion may lie, Your Honor, in what is the injury you're looking to remedy in the action that you're seeking to file. Here, Mr. Ekstrand has made clear he's pursuing a claim for money damages. Now, the basis for the constitutional violation is the speedy trial violation. But the damages he's trying to remedy are all of what we've discussed. There's a seven or eight of them, I think, that are identified in the complaint. If, as, as I understand you to have constructed the question, if the injury that we are remedying is the speedy trial violation, then he doesn't need the claim for money damages because the speedy trial violation has been remedied through the criminal appeal and the finding that the criminal, that the speedy trial right was violated and that those charges were vacated. So if you're focusing on the constitutional violation itself, what's the remedy for the violation? Here we have that with the speedy trial violation finding by the Court of Appeals and the dismissal of the charges. If instead the issue of this lawsuit is because my speedy trial right was violated, I incurred these damages and I need to pursue these damages, then the question is can he recover for those damages? Not that he can recover from District Attorney Klein or the state or any other defendant, it's can I recover for those injuries? Now, this court isn't bound by, Wake, uh, by Taylor v. Wake County. I recognize that that is not a binding opinion on this court. But that is how the jurisprudence has developed, at least at the Court of Appeals, but, but that I, you look at the injury to be remedied, not right. the right to be remedied. Well, but the question is, does he have an adequate remedy for the violation of this right? And I guess our argument remains that the adequacy of the remedy for violation of the right is the vacator of the criminal charges. But so say he proves at trial that, mm -hmm. you know, he has some experts testify that but for the, the speedy trial violation, he would have gone to trial in two years. Mm -hmm. And we know he went to trial in five years and they prove up the money he lost in each of those three excess years, how is that not caused by the constitutional violation of the speedy trial? I mean, maybe he has claims, other claims as well, but to say there's no cause of action when we know, or we assume when, when the case is fully made, that's a, that's a question of fact, it's a question of proof, not is there a cause of action? There's, in my hypothetical, there is mm -hmm. three years proved that he would have made money and supported his family, but for the violation that, that's, that we've already found. And so your question, Justice Riggs, is if that circumstance were proven, what is the adequate remedy to address those three years of delay? Right. Okay. I think, again, the malicious prosecution claim. But, no, no, but I don't. He might have other claims. I guess why, right. why is the, sorry, and I'm sorry if I confused you. Why, I don't see how the vacate, vacating the conviction gets to that three years, if that is indeed the proof, and why we then are taking away a potential cause of action when there's a, a plausible setting in, under which we could prove that, I mean, you'd agree with me that if that's the proof, the vacation of the conviction does not address that those three years of lost wages, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, there's nothing in the vacator of the convictions that addresses money damages at all. And putting Sorry. aside whether there's some other claims, that it is the it, this violation, the speedy trial violation, is what caused those last three those three years of loss of income, right? Well, I think I do believe there would still be an issue, and I know you didn't like the malicious prosecution answer I started to give, but. I, if the initiation of the prosecution and the continuation of that prosecution is the is 
provides an ability to recover for some of those money damages, then the injury is capable of a remedy. It's just not capable against District Attorney Klein and not under a speedy trial violation. Again, there's, I think the distinction that the court may need to draw for itself or in the opinion is if, and again, this is not a referendum on the correctness of Wake, uh, Taylor v. Wake County, but if that principle is applied, and this court did deny discretionary review, I think, of the Taylor case. If that principle is applied, that you're simply looking at what is the injury, it's pretrial incarceration, it's proceeding under the, you know, the specter of the prosecution. Mr. Washington, I believe the facts were he was in jail for a year. Then he was certainly, I think there was discussion in the affidavits about he was unable to find work because he had to always be available to come for the trial. There was the psychological and emotional distress of being subject to prosecution and being accused of the reputational damage, et cetera. That continues whether it's two years, three years, four and a half years. Right, and I understand then that, so I had a hypothetical that had sort of limited injury. Okay. If you have a hypothetical that has more injury, right, if there's malicious prosecution, we might be looking at the whole five years that he was incarcerated and unable to work, right? Mm -hmm. And that might address that. But for the injury, the, the, the portion of the injury that's more narrow, where there may be separate and apart from the other stuff, does that change anything at all? I, I don't think it does, and Your Honor, your, your question brings up an, an additional concern that, that we raised in the briefing. You know, Mr. Washington's case, the conclusion by the Court of Appeals that his speedy trial right had been violated is different, perhaps, than the vast majority of folks who assert speedy trial claims and don't prevail. However, the fact that somebody believes their speedy trial right has been violated, if it is a violation of the Constitution, it's accruing at the moment, whatever that moment is, and that's difficult under the speedy trial test to begin with, it accrues at the moment that the case is prolonged unconstitutional. It doesn't matter that you've had a final determination on the merits of your speedy trial claim. There's no requirement in the speedy trial or jurisprudence that you prevail, or there wouldn't have to be a requirement that you prevail under your speedy trial claim in the criminal court to assert a speedy trial violation under the Constitution. And, and that was the argument that I understood you were making is you know, 45 years ago in McCoy, this court said that the dismissal is the only possible remedy mm -hmm. for the violation. And I took that to mean, because there are other remedies you can envision. One would be to say, if you've been denied your state constitutional right to a speedy trial, you still have a trial anyway. And right. you can still be convicted if you were guilty. But then you can bring a lawsuit, and if you were spend some time in prison, as Justice Earls, I mean, Justice Riggs pointed out, you know, that uh, you can get some kind of damages for that. And mm -hmm. I guess this court said, actually, that's not the, a, a available remedy. There is only one possible remedy. And I took your argument to be, and that's almost like per se, it must be an adequate state remedy because it's the only remedy that we've said is available under that constitutional right. I agree that the this court's case law on the speedy trial right has said that the only remedy that's available for a violation of that right in the criminal case is vacator of the charges. Um, you know, the, the Court of Appeals, of course, said, yes, that's true, but this is talking about a civil remedy, not what's available in the criminal case. And I think the distinction that the court may have been drawing was, look, in the criminal case for this violation, the only way to remedy the violation itself is vacator of the charges. If it were 
an evidentiary ruling that went against the defendant. If it was, uh, you know, a witness who was allowed to testify who shouldn't have been, or, you know, coaching of a, of a sex abuse witness, or something along those lines, the court could identify the error, return, you know, remand the case for a new trial. Here, the speedy trial violation, the aspects, the factors that this court in McCoy and the federal court in uh, the Supreme Court in Barker v. Wingo all talked about were it's kind of squishy. You don't know when it occurred. You're not really sure that it's been prejudiced to the defendant, but you have to evaluate all of these factual and case-specific items in order to determine whether the right has even been violated. And if it has, because of the uh, consequences of extended delay, witnesses lose memory, witnesses disappear, evidence may you know, deteriorate, that in that circumstance, vacator is the only remedy within the context of the criminal appeal. I don't think that this court considered in McCoy or that the federal court in Barker, or the Supreme Court, I keep saying federal court, Supreme Court in Barker v. Wingo was ever contemplating is this creating a civil remedy somewhere down the line for that violation? Um, you know, there's- But what I was getting at is the, the, those courts, this court in particular, could have said, we're not gonna allow the dismissal of criminal cases for speedy trial violations. Because it could have, you right. can have a remedy, which is file a lawsuit, but we're not gonna let someone who actually committed a crime and is guilty avoid their conviction because we didn't we, the state, didn't get that person to trial fast enough. And that, instead, what, the, what we've done in our state constitutional doctrine is that actually that is the, re the only possible remedy, is mm -hmm. you will, your charges will be dismissed if that provision's been violated. Right. And so I took your argument to be that is the adequate state remedy. It is a very intrusive remedy, but it's the one that the courts have chosen. And so permitting these, another remedy here that runs afoul of the least intrusive principle in quorum because we've already selected this very intrusive remedy that even a guilty person will never uh, right. and, be convicted here. Uh, That's the remedy. Yeah, I, I, that is, I think, a roundabout way what our argument was. Uh, you know, the, it's not that, well, it's an intrusive remedy for sure, and we were focusing on the quorum language of least intrusive because you're talking again about a civil claim for damages. And this court has addressed those constitutional rights very narrowly, each, you know, to the extent that even in Tully, for example, the court said, you have to plead these three elements before you can even raise this claim. And all of those other cases, unlike this one, I believe were addressed at the 12B6 stage. This is a summary judgment motion. All of the evidence has been gathered. The trial court dismissed this at summary judgment, not at the 12B6 stage. So the, I think the distinction would be, again, is the injury that, he, that Mr. Washington and now his son are seeking to remedy, is it the violation of the Constitution or is it the money damages, emotional distress, et cetera? If it's the former, he's already received a remedy for that violation. If it's the latter, then the court's question needs to be, I think, what should that remedy be? Is the remedy for the violation of the right alone enough? Is that the least intrusive remedy because of the potential intrusiveness of a claim for money damages for a violation of that right and frankly, any other right in the criminal context that could not necessarily be fixed within the criminal case itself. But it, it seems to me, with your argument that the dismissal of the charges is a more intrusive <laughs> remedy, that you're suggesting under quorum that there shouldn't be a dismissal of the charges, there should be, uh, that money damages would be the least intrusive remedy. So I'm really confused on how least intrusive remedy helps you here 
What, I'm what I want to focus on is what I think Quorum is asking us to determine, and that is whether it's an adequate remedy. And you brought up the notion that, well, he, he might have gotten some recovery for malicious prosecution, but it's entirely possible to have a Speedy Trial Act violation where there isn't a malicious prosecution. Right. There's just the failure to bring someone to trial in time, which could prejudice them under the, you know, we look at the Barker factors, we found that there was prejudice. They could have, you know, had a different defense if they'd had their constitutional right to a speedy trial recognized. And so it seems to me if we're deciding the fundamental question of whether or not quorum provides an, a an action for money damages for the violation of the state constitutional right, that we've got to ask whether there could be money damages for injuries that are not addressed by merely dismissing the charges. Well, I, I don't, I think your confusion, Your Honor, or your concern may be misdirected. The issue with quorum, the adequacy of the remedy, here, you know, each of the, the, this court's quorum cases address is there an adequate remedy for the, you know, for the violation of the right? And in the, I don't believe the court has addressed the, you know, the Taylor v. Wake County question directly. But if, again, the question is, can Mr. Washington, under the facts and the claims that are alleged in the complaint and the facts that are available, can he recover for the injuries prompted by, in some respects, the same speedy trial violation through the malicious prosecution claim, then he has an adequate remedy under Quorum, Dominski, Craig, Tully, and all of the other cases. If he cannot recover in the hypothetical you drew where there is no potential malicious prosecution claim, that's a different case, that's a different question. And so the court would then be looking at, is there any other adequate state law remedy? If in the hypothetical you drew, there was no malicious prosecution claim available for one reason or another, there was no uh, abusive process or any other claim that could conceivably be brought, then the analysis of there's no other remedy here for recovery of money damages for the financial and, and reputational injury, then the question of should we allow a direct cause of action under the Constitution? But that's not the case you have here in front of you. I see. So you're, you're, you're not asking us to find that there could never be a claim, you're saying, in this particular case, because he also had a malicious prosecution claim, his injuries were adequately remedied. Yes, I, I certainly believe there is a universe of judiciary officials, district attorneys, magistrates, who would love for you to say there is no possibility that this claim can be brought because for, at least for a speedy trial violation, it's remedied through the vacator of the charges. But you don't have to say that for every case categorically. And that's not the way this court has addressed these quorum claims before. You can simply say there's, there is an adequate remedy here that Mr. Washington had available to him through the malicious prosecution claim. Therefore, there is an adequate remedy and he does not have the right to bring a direct constitutional claim against the state. Counsel, I, I realize your time is running short, yes, but, but aren't you saying uh, this it, just in a different way, that the vindication of the right itself is an adequate remedy, and then other claims uh, are, are a totally different ma matter? Yes, certainly the focus of our brief is that the vacator of the charges is the remedy this court should recognize for that. Addressing Justice Earls' question of does, it, does the court have to do that? No, for, for us to prevail. But the argument certainly that we've advanced in the briefing was vacator of the charges is the appropriate remedy and to the exclusion of a claim for money damages. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to address two things for sure. First, uh, counsel's epiphany 
um, with respect to, my gosh, they must have settled and that's why we dismissed uh, settling the, I suppose, the malicious prosecution claim. There was no settlement uh, and not one of these defendants has offered a dime to settle any of these claims. There was no settlement. The reason why the dismissal occurred after discovery was because it became very clear to me that the police defendants did not have a hand in the constitutional violations and certainly not the speedy trial violation at all. That the arrest was made based on an identification on the street and it was a, it was a, a arguably unconstitutional procedure. Um, but the, but the, everything that happened after his arrest was driven by Ms. Klein. And so all of, the, all of those common law claims, and yes, I, I, we, I think we asserted 23 common law claims, some, some 1983 claims. Uh, immunities dispensed with all of them, and those that remained, the facts didn't support. In other words, the facts didn't support a, cl a claim uh, against the officers who, who have limited immunities and there are ways through it, but th there was, their conduct did not violate the constitutional right at issue. Ms. Klein's conduct did um, from literally not producing requested for information about all the other Trinity Park home invasions. All those files, everything that you, you read about the Trinity Park home invasions in, in, in the trial lawyers, trial counsel's affidavit, all of that was withheld. He was asked for it from the, from the beginning. He said, Mr. Campbell said, I want all the investigative files of all these other cases that are ongoing and they were never produced. We got them in discovery in this case. But Ms. Klein had the obligation to produce that. The reason why the SBI never got an order, the orders that, that Judge Stevens signed compelling the production of DNA testing uh, and, the, and the, the determination of whether DNA from this particular crime matched anybody in the CODIS database, that wasn't done because Ms. Klein never sent the order to the SBI and that came out at trial. Great deal came out at trial that should have been taken care of earlier, but, but the, the delay was caused by Ms. Klein and, and, it, and the speedy trial violation by its nature is a violation that is, that is principally going to always involve a prosecutor and the state has asserted absolute immunity from all of that. Um, and, and the court in Craig and in Quorum has held that no immunity is sufficient to justify dismissal of a case where there's a constitutional violation because the constitution is the supreme law of our land and immunities are merely judge-made rules. So, With respect to the discussion about remedies, and I want to emphasize this, you know, the summary judgment, our summary judgment motion, the state's summary judgment motion, had nothing to do with damages. We sought summary judgment on liability for the speedy trial violation. Um, they, they sought this summary judgment um, on, the, on the issue of immunity and on the issue of, uh, it's, it's hard to really, really put it in the categories that we're talking about now, but it, it was essentially a similar argument. Uh, not that the remedies were, not that the, the constitutional violation and the criminal remedy was adequate. It was just merely, this is, this is it. You know, this is all you get. And um, I think you'd have to read the transcript of the argument to, to really understand kind of how amorphous that argument was. Um, with respect to Justice Dietz, your, your hypothetical about a criminal defendant, why don't they just go sue uh, year three in civil court? And I think that <laughs> that is an issue that's, that's addressed principally by the collateral attack doctrine and, and, and the idea of being a criminal defendant can't go to civil court to vindicate um, some right that is at issue in a pending criminal matter. Um, and there's just an order of things, and I think that precludes it. Just, just for example, if there's a unconstitutional search or seizure, the the first course is to talk to the the criminal court and and have a hearing about whether it was justified. But 
you, you can't go to civil court and assert a, a claim for damages until or unless that criminal conviction is resolved. And so that, it, I just wanted to raise that because I think that that raised a lot of concerns that I think that the collateral attack doctrine resolved. The final thing I, I want to emphasize is, is that this discussion of remedies and what remedies are available, um, there are a host of remedies that need to be addressed in our view. It, but it's probably not the right place here in this court to address whether or not the evidence is sufficient to, to establish a right to relief for economic losses or lost earning capacity, reputational harm. That, those are questions that a judge and a jury resolve all the time in, in, in litigation leading up to the, to the charge conference. And I think that's where this, that discussion properly belongs. But there's no question that the, the dismissal of charges in this case does not come close to being adequate to remedy the harms caused by the constitutional violation. Thank you, counsel.